Revelation 7. And our text this morning is taken at verses 1 to 8. Revelation 7, verses 1 to 8. Let's read that together. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no, one, uh, no uh, wind might blow on the earth or sea uh, or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the, sealing, uh, with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Well, maybe like you, uh, uh, like me rather, you have read through uh, passages like this in Revelation and left you scratching your head at the end wondering, what do I make of these things? And uh, you uh, maybe pass on to the next chapter hoping that that might bring you some light. And I've often found that myself, uh, leaving, ha having left me scratching my head and wondering. And, uh, and sometimes that's... Uh, the importance of doing what we're doing uh, today and taking a, a deeper dive into some of these things and, and uh, demystifying them so that they're not as, as uh, bothersome or troublesome or mysterious to us as we uh, formerly thought. Uh, as we look in on uh, this passage, we are seeing things that we have been seeing quite a bit up until this time. We're trying to distinguish between certain kinds of literature in the Bible. Some literature which is poetic, like the Psalms, or historical, like the Old Testament books of 2 Samuel, Kings, the Gospels, Acts, some of these, and then epistles, and then apocalyptic language that describes real historical events in, in and through imagery. And that's the difference between the idea of literal and non-literal. By literal, we mean that it has historically happened. It was a literal event. Uh, by non-literal, we're looking at something that A, might be poetic, that the, uh, that the eyes of God run to and fro on the earth. That's a poetic image of God being all-seeing and all-knowing, not to imagine the eyes of God have little feet that run around on the earth. It's poet. It's, it's poetry. 
And so when we come to apocalyptic language, we want to reinforce the idea that John is seeing things that will actually happen upon the earth through images. And sometimes he will describe the same event in a different image to drive something home. Just as we might explain something to someone and say, let me take an example. You see that seed? Jesus did that all the time, didn't he? He uses examples from life. Um, in fact, uh, we have been seeing that the uh, image for Jesus here in the book of Revelation, the Lamb, is not literal of Jesus. It's not, a, 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 in fact, we're, we're not to understand that there is a Lamb instead of a person in heaven right now. But he's using the image of a lamb, which he sees, he actually sees it in his vision, uh, as representing the person and work of Jesus. At the end of last chapter, uh, we've been seeing this progression. We saw the great and final judgment of God upon the earth. And you may say, well, how does that take place in the first six chapters of Revelation? Aren't there more chapters to come? Shouldn't we wait for that conclusion at the end? Well, again, John is telling and retelling the story over and over again to drive home the point. And that's one of the things that we're going to see this morning with some of these numbers that John talks about, which, again, sometimes mystify us. At the end of uh, chapter 6, as I said, we saw the consummation of all things, the great and final judgment upon the wicked. We saw the justice of God coming home. And that is one thing the people of God look forward to. And that's why we can possess our souls. We don't have to be coming apart at the scenes when we see injustice in the world because we read about it in chapter 6, where God uh, gives justice and gives justice to His people. That, war, that cry how long, O oh Lord, is answered in verses 12 to 17. God says, now I am answering your prayer and I am going to judge those who uh, bring injustice and murder and war and persecution upon the saints. And so that question is answered. But what we're going to see this morning is the answer to another question. That was left hanging at the last, the end of last week. The end of chapter 6. And who can stand? Who can stand? Who is able to stand, in other words, in the face of these things that will come upon the earth? It strikes terror into the hearts of even the boldest person. To hear of earthquakes and the sun becoming black like sackcloth and the moon becoming like blood and the stars falling to the earth and the fig tree shedding its fruit and so on. And the question arises then, who can stand? When we look around at one another, at one another's properties over the, the hurricane, we say, well, everyone, indiscriminately, of your religion, of your political stripe, whatever it was, people everywhere on the island got touched by the hurricane. This person lost a tree, tree fell on this person's house, this person's uh, cottage was uh, moved or destroyed or whatever. The, 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 the sand dunes were, were uh, uh, pummeled and so on, indiscriminately. Uh, and 
we look around at one another and say, I'm not all that different from my neighbor in that respect. How do I know that I'm going to be different in this regard? If these things come upon the earth, how do I know that I too am not going to be swept away? And so the question is there, who can stand? Who can stand? And these verses, verses 1 to 8, answer that question. Just when everything seems to be lost and that all might be swept up in this, the, the, the answer to the question comes in, again, a very rich and powerful image of the 144,000. Now, this has been seen, again, by people in different ways. Interpreters have looked at it uh, very differently. Um, there is a group within the Christian church, and they have a dispensational theology. And they say that the 144,000 is a faithful group of Jews who are converted in the tribulation, and who then convert the great multitude which no man can number. And so because they, these, this group of interpreters sees things in chronological order, that everything is coming one after another, not seeing it as a cycle, uh, I think their understanding of the passage is wrong. And so this gives rise to, for example, um, books and movies like the Left Behind movies, which maybe some of you have read or seen and so on. Speaking of the, 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 the rapture, where a pilot might be flying his plane, and there's the co-pilot, and all of a sudden, he's gone. You know, uh, or you might be walking along with someone, and you know, you're having a conversation, and boom, they're gone. They've been secretly raptured. And so this is the understanding where the church is secretly taken out. The great tribulation comes. These 144,000 faithful Jews uh, come to faith, Somehow, without a church there, they come to faith and they are the means of converting this great multitude which no man can number. Now, I think uh, the large majority of commentators would not take it that way. Uh, that this is to be seen in uh, a particular way in keeping with what the Word of God says in other places. It's not easy. It, it has to be handled quite carefully. But we want to do, what we want to do first is to identify this number. Identify the 144,000. Who are they? Well, we've all already seen in summary form uh, how some people in the church characterize the 144,000. Is this number, is this group of people a mathematical number of those who will be saved? In other words, is it to be exactly 144,000? One commentator said that we are to understand this number spiritually and not mathematically. In other words, it has a spiritual application rather than a, a, uh, a mathematical one. This group is numbered as 144,000 to emphasize the perfection and protection of the church. Later, next week, we're going to look at 
the great multitude which no man can number. Those two groups are the same. They're the same. One is seen from heaven's perspective. The other is seen from man's perspective. I looked at a crowd which no man can number. If we were to look at the saints of God across the world and down through time, we say, one, two, three, four, and we get up to a, you know, oh, wait now, I'll have to start again. We can't number them. There's, it's so vast. But from God's perspective, that number is perfect. And everyone whom God intends is in that number. That's what numbers are for in the book of Revelation. And especially the number 12 and the number 1,000. For example, in chapter 21, verses 13 and 14, it talks about the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. Now again, that is, those numbers are significant because they represent the Old and New Testament saints taken together. The Old and New Testament saints taken together. So you have 12, you have 12, which symbolizes the full complement of God's people, both Old and New Testament. You add to that the number of perfection of 1,000. So for example, poetically, the Bible says that a cattle on a thousand hills are God's. Now, does he mean exactly 1,000? What about 1,015? What about 1,030? Well, they belong to someone else, I guess, because it's only a cattle on a thousand hills are gods. No, it's using the numbers symbolically. In other words, it's saying all the cattle on all the hills are gods. Jesus was asked by Peter, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Jesus says, no, I say unto you not seven times, but seventy times seven. Well, I'll keep a count. And when he reached the end of that seventy times seven, 490, I'll stop. Now, he, Jesus wasn't intending numbers to be used that way, was he? He was saying that you keep on going forgiving your brother, just as I have forgiven you. Wouldn't we be in awful shape if God only forgave us 490 times for the things that we've done? No, Jesus is using those numbers in a complete and wonderful way. And so in the Hebrew mind, in order to emphasize something, Jesus might say, truly, truly, I say unto you, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Or God is holy, holy, holy. He is now answering the question, how are we going to be safe from all of this? Are we going to be protected? God says, yes, yes, yes. I say 12 by 12 by 1,000, underline it, make it bold. That's how protected the church is. That's how I'm going to answer this question. Now, does he answer it in a way that we think is, that's, you know, common to us? No, he takes a, a, a very 
wonderful but unexpected turn to drive that home. How safe am I, Lord? How protected am I? Twelve by twelve by a thousand. In other words, complete by complete by perfect. That's how safe you are. And so what he does is spiritualizes the twelve tribes of Israel. He takes Judah and puts him right at the first because Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the head of the church. He is the one who was overcome. So he sticks him at the first even though he's not the firstborn. And he takes out some uh, guys like Ephraim and Dan who are, were idolatrous tribes and he sticks in there uh, uh, Joseph. And he makes the number 12 so what we're looking at is not a strictly historical representation of the 12 tribes, are we? You have to go back into the Old Testament and find out from, his, from the history books of Genesis what the 12 tribes actually literally are. But his interest here is not literal, but spiritual. And so... He is emphasizing the perfection of the people of God by going back and saying, you saints, you believers in disabled or in Canada or around the world, you, though you, you're, you don't have the blood of Abraham going through you, yet the moment you believe in Jesus, you are a child of Abraham through faith in Jesus. That is wonderful. We are the Israel of God. That's, that's why the New Testament goes back into the Old Testament language and uses the, the terms and phrases that was used to describe the Old Testament saints and says now to the church, to Gentile people, you're them. You're the people. You are the true Israel of God who worship God in the Spirit and not according to the flesh. You see... You are the true Jews. You are the true people of God. And so the Bible is unequivocal in that sense. It's not those according to the flesh that are the children of God, but those of the Spirit. Jesus himself says, Who is my mother and my brothers and my sisters? But those who hear the word of God and do it. That's the real genealogy that matters. So much so does the New Testament imbibe that language of, that was applied to Israel that he now says of the church, he's able to use the 12 tribes of Israel to say, you're them. Though you're Gentiles, you are now included in the commonwealth of Israel. You are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb of God that stretches back to the very Garden of Eden. And you are included now in that number. That's how we seek to understand it. And that's where I think dispensational theology that is imbibed through things like popularized by the left-behind movies and the left-behind books and so on uh, gets off track. 
if we take what Revelation is saying within itself in line with the New Testament, what it says about the people of God, and how that connects us with the people of God of the Old Testament, it's easy for us now to say the 144,000 is a perfect description of God's people, the 12 by 12 by 1,000, saying they are going to be protected over this time of judgment. And so you might be a little old lady who can't get out of her bed in the Atlantic Baptist home or in the South Shore Villa or wherever it might be, and you have you are subject to COVID, you're subject to maybe the your family doesn't visit you or whatever it may be, and yet you have saving faith in the Lord Jesus, you are protected then. You are part of that number. Though all of these things come upon the earth, and though we tremble, as many people do when they look at the book of Revelation and say, wow, that's, that's pretty scary stuff. Yet we say, God is saying to us, 12 by 12 by 1,000. That's how you are protected. That's how you are loved. And so we see the number is perfect. We see that we who believe are children of Abraham through faith in Jesus. Jesus fulfills the promises to Abraham. And the moment you believe, you are now a part of that scheme. And now we have a whole framework of understanding the whole Bible. And so we, we say, look, this is not just God trying to confuse us. By, I mean, what's he doing bringing all these names out from the Old Testament? Shouldn't they be left behind? What is he doing here? Is he just trying to confuse? No, he's saying, it's his way of saying, you are my people. And just as I visited Egypt with the plagues to bring out Judah and Levi and Simeon and all of these I will do the same for you. And I will bring you through the wilderness. And I will bring you into a land flowing with milk and honey. You are them. You are part of that group. So, so tightly knit are Gentile believers with the Old Testament church that God is not ashamed. He's not, he's not trying to confuse you. He's saying, this is how much you are the people of God. That I'm willing to take all of these names and say, it's yours. And so we can sing Psalm 16, as we read at the outset, at the beginning, uh, where the psalmist says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. We can say that as Gentiles, having never owned an inch of land in the land of Canaan or in the land of Israel, but we can say, we can use their language. Because now, I have a beautiful inheritance in Jesus, in the Gospel. And I look around and I say, oh, I'm so thankful to be a part of the tribes of Israel. To be a part of God's people. Sealed. Completed. Protected. But that takes us to the second uh, 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 aspect. He says at 5 to 
12. The number is sealed. Now, we need to go back to the beginning. After this, I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. So there's four angels. Holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. So he's, we see four angels. John, again, is seeing a vision. We are not to imagine that on the North Pole and the South Pole there are angels right now and one in Afghanistan and one in, in uh, California and they're holding, actually holding physically back four winds. God, John is seeing a vision in picture form the things that God is doing through world history. And these angels are restraining the four winds. We know what winds are all about. We've just lived through this hurricane a few weeks ago. We're still cleaning up. As you drive to church, you can still see the effects of it all over the place. And wind was seen as a me an instrument of judgment in the Bible. We've already seen uh, earlier on in chapter 6, this, this, the four seals of the four, four horsemen of the apocalypse. As they ride out, War and famine and disease and all these things. And now the question comes, who can stand? And God says to the, these, these four angels, hold back the four winds. In other words, hold back the riders. These are, the winds are another way of describing the destructive nature of these riders that have come out with great fury. And the angels are holding them back. A picture emerges in my mind of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when they come to arrest Him. And Jesus comes between His disciples and the soldiers. He says, I am He. If you're looking for Me, let them go. And they bound Him and took Him away. We see it throughout the Bible. In Zechariah, these images are brought together. In uh, uh, Zechariah chapter 6 uh, and at verse 5 he talks about the first chariot had red horses, second chariot had black horses, third white horses, the fourth chariot had dappled horses. There's the horses that we see were the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord. So there we have, in that image, married together, the horses and the wind. So that they have basically the same function in the image of John, in this narrative that's taking place in his vision. And they're being held back and he says in verse 2, Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. The seal of the living God. We know what seals are all about. Sometimes if we need to get a document notarized or an official document, we might go to a lawyer or a notary public and they take a seal and they put their seal on it. it has, it's their seal. And you say, here it's official. Here this is legal. 
I have a legal right to this. And God does the same with His people. He seals them. He wants them to know that they're sealed. And so we, we, we can go... And that, that's always been the case. You go back into the chapter we read in Exodus chapter 12 when the people of Israel are ready to come out and God says, hang on a minute. On this night you shall take a lamb and put blood over the doorposts and when the angel of death passes over, if he sees the blood, he will pass over. If he doesn't see the blood, then the firstborn of that household will die, irrespective of their Jew or Gentile, Pharaoh or a slave, whatever it is, from the top to the bottom. We see that in chapter 6, don't we? At the end. Verse 15, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, the general, the rich and the powerful, everyone slave and free. It takes you right down, doesn't it? And so, the, but there's this seal on the people of God. They're protected from what? From the judgments that are going to come. The angel of death that is going to pass over. And God doesn't give them a sword or a gun or a chariot to protect themselves, but the blood. The blood of a lamb. And so in that, God is holding back the angel of death as he comes in over the, the people of Israel. And he's protecting them by putting a seal on them. He says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. And this is what he shows us here. Uh, then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. It protects them spiritually from the coming judgment. I say that's, that he, he protects them spiritually because we already know that violence and destruction and persecution will be what the people of God will be going through. Jesus said, in this world you shall have persecution. You shall have tribulation, rather. We spent just the last chapter looking at how the saints are going to suffer to the point where they say, Lord, how long? So the protection and the deliverance here is spiritual. He's going to seal them. He's going to keep them spiritually. This is what Jim, James Montgomery Boyce said. He says, what this sealing accomplishes is the perseverance in faith. God's work in them to assure that they will stand firm till the end. He keeps your soul. Though you may go through terrible things in your life, terrible suffering, terrible persecution, even death, as many of our brothers and sisters are, are going through right now around the world. But Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he should gain the world and lose his soul? So what is the most important thing that we possess? I'm not trying to say that the body is not worth anything. It is. Our salvation is a whole salvation. Body and soul. But to lose one's soul is of great uh, significance. And so He puts a seal on us. He keeps our souls. He preserves us through 
whatever this life has to throw at us. And that is pictured in these angels holding back the four winds, holding back the four horsemen of the apocalypse who want to take everything in their wake, body and soul, just consume with an insatiable appetite everything. And so God says, hold back the four winds until I have sealed the servants of God. And so, it, uh, it, Jesus says to us, Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. The Spirit of God applying the work of Jesus to our lives. You have eternal life. You have passed from death unto life. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We may suffer. And we may have tribulation, but we will not be lost. The Apostle Paul celebrates that. He says, look, we may even be counted as sheep to the slaughter. Yes, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life, nor death, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. He, he, he throws everything in there but the kitchen sink. Shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the ceiling. That's the protection that we have as the Spirit of God applies the blood of Jesus and now that ceiling is there. It's sure. And it's a mark that is upon us. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1. When you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, what happened? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. There's that tribes of Israel stuff coming back again. Who is the in uh, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The moment you believed, you were sealed. And at that moment, all hell could not undo you. The devil was defeated in that sealing. God's protection was over you. The blood was on you. The Spirit was in you. And now the authenticity of that sealing begins to be, come out in your life. The reality of that is now seen in new desires, new perspectives, a repentant heart. Lord, I hate these sins. I don't want to do this anymore. I, 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 I need to be delivered from these things, Lord. And so... You turn in faith and you say, Lord, I, I, I thank you for the beauty of the cross, the perfection of Jesus, your Son, for all that he has done for me. It's sufficient. It's perfect. What's happening? You may not be thinking, but you, the seal is now showing. The seal is shining out. It's not only a seal of protection. It's now authenticated. And the more you suffer, not only is suffering not going to undo you, 
But suffering is now going to confirm you, as it did the Apostle Paul. Yes, we are sheep to the slaughter every day, but in this we are more than conquerors. The more Paul suffered, the more the glory shone out. The greater the seal was shown in all its full strength. That's who Paul was. That's who he's saying we are now. When you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the promise of, uh, and the guarantee of the inheritance which is to come. And so we have passed from death unto life. It's a beautiful picture, friends. In a very image-driven, very poetic way God is sending his angels holding back the four winds he says they are precious let nothing happen until they are sealed and he seals them with the blood he seals them with the spirit he protects them and now they spend the rest of their lives giving evidence to that through their changed desires, their longings, their love for Jesus, their praise. To, that's why Paul says at the end of that passage in Ephesians, to the praise of His glory. The ceiling doesn't come out as beautiful as when the saints are gathered together praising the glory of Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. Who sealed us with His own precious blood who put His own Spirit inside of us. And the people of God gather every Lord's Day to the praise of His glory and say, Thank You, O God, for so great a salvation. O God, help me to do nothing that would grieve that Holy Spirit by which I am sealed unto the day of salvation. Lord, Help me to do nothing but give evidence to the fact that I, yes, I am sealed. I wonder, is that you today? Can you say that about yourself? Can you say that, yes, I have been sealed. I'm not a perfect person. But I love Jesus. And I'm resting this morning in nothing but that Gospel, that sweet and perfect Gospel. That He is 12 by 12 by a thousand. That His love is 12 by 12 by a thousand. And He has made my future 12 by 12 by a thousand to the praise of His glory. And what it is saying to us then, if you're not in Christ this morning, that you don't be satisfied in the empty life that you have. That your life simply consists in getting up in the morning and going to work and coming home. And yes, maybe having a good family life, having lots of other good things, but look, at the end of the day, it's the seal that counts. Are you sealed? Are you washed? What think ye of Christ? That, those are the big questions of life. Not what am I, what's my tax return going to be like in the spring? What, you know, where am I going to go on vacation? What college am I going to send my children to? No, friends. Am I part of that number? Am I in, counted among the people of God?
When, as the old song says, when the roll is called up yonder, will I be there? God says, it is through the blood of my Son. So this morning, I urge you if, you, if, if these things are of no value to you, you would call out to God, that you would call out to Him and say, Lord, cleanse me in the blood of Christ. Fill me with Your Spirit. Seal me unto the day of redemption. That my part might be with the people of God in that 144,000. That great multitude which no man can number. Let's pray.